Book Two, Chapter Eight of History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Two, Chapter Eight. Another Aztec Embassy. Destruction of Idols, Dispatches Sent to Spain, Conspiracy in the Camp, The Fleet Sunk. While the Spaniards were occupied with their new settlement, they were surprised by the presence of an embassy from Mexico. The account of the imprisonment of the royal collectors had spread rapidly through the country. When it reached the capital, all were filled with amazement at the unprecedented daring of the strangers. In Montezuma, Every other feeling, even that of fear, was swallowed up in indignation, and he showed his wonted energy in the vigorous preparations which he instantly made to punish his rebellious vassals, and to avenge the insult offered to the majesty of the empire. But when the Aztec officers, liberated by Cortes, reached the capital, and reported the courteous treatment they had received from the Spanish commander, Montezuma's anger was mitigated and his superstitious fears, getting the ascendancy again, induced him to resume his former timid and conciliatory policy. He accordingly sent an embassy consisting of two youths, his nephews, and four of the ancient nobles of his court to the Spanish quarters. He provided them, in his usual munificent spirit, with a princely donation of gold, rich cotton stuffs, and beautiful mantles of the plumage or feather embroidery. The envoys, on coming before Cortes, presented him with the articles, at the same time offering the acknowledgment of their master for the courtesy he had shown in liberating his captive nobles. He was surprised and afflicted, however, that the Spaniards should have countenanced his faithless vassals in their rebellion. He had no doubt they were the strangers whose arrival had been so long announced by the oracles and of the same lineage with himself. From deference to them, he would spare the Teutonics while they were present, but the time for vengeance would come. Cortes entertained the Indian chieftains with frank hospitality. At the same time, he took care to make such a display of his resources as, while it amused their minds, should leave a deep impression of his power. He then, after a few trifling gifts, dismissed them with a conciliatory message to their master, and the assurance that he should soon pay his respects to him in his capital, where all misunderstandings between them would be readily adjusted. The Teutonic allies could scarcely credit their senses when they gathered the nature of this interview. Notwithstanding the presence of the Spaniards, they had looked with apprehension to the consequences of their rash act, and their feelings of admiration were heightened into awe for the strangers who, at this distance, could exercise so mysterious an influence over the terrible Montezuma. Not long after, the Spaniards received an application from the cacique of Sempoala to aid him in a dispute in which he was engaged with a neighboring city. Cortes marched with a part of his forces to his support. On the route, Juan Moria, a common soldier, robbed the native of a couple of fowls. Cortes, indignant at this violation of his orders before his face, 
and aware of the importance of maintaining a reputation for good faith with his allies, commanded the man to be hung up at once by the roadside, in face of the whole army. Fortunately for the poor wretch, Pedro de Alvarado, the future conqueror of Quiche, was present, and ventured to cut down the body while there was yet life in it. He, probably, thought enough had been done, for example, and the loss of a single life, unnecessarily, was more than the little band could afford. The antidote is characteristic as showing the strict discipline maintained by Cortez over his men and the freedom assumed by his captains, who regarded him on terms nearly of equality as a fellow adventurer with themselves. This feeling of companionship led to a spirit of insubordination among them, which made his own post as commander the more delicate and difficult. On reaching the hostile city, but a few leagues from the coast, they were received in an amicable manner, and Cortez, who was accompanied by his allies, had the satisfaction of reconciling these different branches of the Totonac family with each other, without bloodshed. He returned to Sempoala, where he was welcomed with joy by the people, who were now impressed with as favorable an opinion of his moderation and justice as they had before been of his valor. In token of his gratitude, the Indian Kasik delivered to the general eight Indian maidens, richly dressed, wearing collars and ornaments of gold, with a number of female slaves to wait on them. They were daughters of the principal chiefs, and the Kasik requested that the Spanish captains might take them as their wives. Cortez received the damsels courteously, but told the Kasik that they must first be baptized, as the sons of the church could have no commerce with idolaters. He then declared that it was a great object of his mission to wean the natives from their heathenish abominations, and besought the Totonac lord to allow his idols to be cast down, and the symbols of the true faith to be erected in their place. To this the other answered as before, that his gods were good enough for him, nor could all the persuasion of the general, nor the preachings of Father Olmedo, induce him to acquiesce. Mingled with his polytheism, he had conceptions of a supreme and infinite being, creator of the universe, and his darkened understanding could not comprehend how such a being could condescend to take the form of humanity with its infirmities and ills and wander about on earth, the voluntary victim of persecution from the hands of those who his breath had called into existence. He plainly told the Spaniards that he would resist any violence offered to his gods, who would indeed avenge the acts themselves by the instant destruction of their enemies. But the zeal of the Christians had mounted too high to be cooled by remonstrance or menace. During their residence in the land, they had witnessed more than once the barbarous rites of the natives, their cruel sacrifices of human victims, and their disgusting cannibal repasts. Their souls sickened at these abominations, and they agreed with one voice to stand by their general when he told him that heaven would never smile on their enterprise if they countenanced such atrocities, and that, for his own part, he was resolved the Indian idols should be demolished that very hour, if it cost him his life. To postpone the work of conversion was a sin. In the enthusiasm of the moment, the dictates of policy and ordinary prudence were alike unheeded. 
Scarcely waiting for his commands, the Spaniards moved toward one of the principal teocallis, or temples, which rose high on a pyramidal foundation, with a steep ascent of stone steps in the middle. The cacique, divining their purpose, instantly called his men to arms. The Indian warriors gathered from all quarters, with shrill cries and a clashing of weapons, while the priests, in their dark cotton robes, with disheveled tresses matted with blood, flowing wildly over their shoulders, rushed frantic among the natives, calling on them to protect their gods from violation. All was now confusion, tumult, and warlike menace, where so lately had been peace and the sweet brotherhood of nations. Cortez took his usual prompt and decided measures. He caused the cacique and some of the principal inhabitants and priests to be arrested by his soldiers. He then commanded them to quiet the people, for if an arrow was shot against the Spaniard, it should cost every one of them his life. Marina, at the same time, represented the madness of resistance and reminded the cacique that, if he now alienated the affections of the Spaniards, he would be left without a protector against the terrible vengeance of Montezuma. These temporal considerations seem to have had more weight with the Totonac chieftain than those of a more spiritual nature. He covered his face with his hands, exclaiming that the gods would avenge their own wrongs. The Christians were not slow in availing themselves of his tacit acquiescence. Fifty soldiers, at a signal from their general, sprang up the great stairway of the temple, entered the building on the summit, the walls which were black with human gore, tore the huge wooden idols from their foundations, and dragged them to the edge of the terrace their fantastic forms and features conveying a symbolic meaning, which was lost on the Spaniards, seemed in their eyes only the hideous lineaments of Satan. With great alacrity, they rolled the colossal monsters down the steps of the pyramid, amid the triumphant shouts of their own companions, and the groans and lamentations of the natives. There they consummated the whole by burning them in the presence of the assembled multitude." The same effect followed as in Cozumel. The Totonecs, finding their deities incapable of preventing or even punishing this profanation of their shrines, conceived a mean opinion of their power compared with that of the mysterious and formidable strangers. The floors and walls of the Teocali were then cleansed, by command of Cortes, from their foul impurities. A fresh coating of stucco was laid on them by the Indian masons, and an altar was raised, surmounted by a lofty cross, and hung with garlands of roses. A procession was next formed, in which some of the principal Totone priests, exchanging their dark mantles for robes of white, carried lighted candles in their hands, while an image of the Virgin, half smothered under the weight of flowers, was borne aloft, and, as the procession climbed the steps of the temple, was deposited above the altar." Mass was performed by Father Almedo, and the impressive character of the ceremony and the passionate eloquence of the good priests touched the feeling of the motley audience, until Indians as well as Spaniards, if we may trust the chronicler, were melted into tears and audible sobs. An old soldier named Juan de Torres, disabled by bodily infirmity, consented to remain and watch over the sanctuary and instruct the natives in its services. Cortez, then embracing his Totonac allies, now brothers in religion as in arms, set out once more for the Villa Rica, 
where he had some arrangements to complete, previous to his departure for the capital. He was surprised to find that a Spanish vessel had arrived there in his absence, having on board twelve soldiers and two horses. It was under the command of a captain named Saucedo, a cavalier of the ocean, who had followed in the track of Cortez in quest of adventure. Though a small, they afforded a very seasonable body of recruits for the little army. By these men, the Spaniards were informed that Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, had lately received a warrant from the Spanish government to establish a colony in the newly discovered countries. Cortez now resolved to put a plan in execution, which he had been some time meditating. He knew that all the late acts of the colony, as well as his own authority, would fall to the ground without the royal sanction. He knew, too, that the interest of Velasquez, which was great at court, would as soon as he was acquainted with his succession be wholly employed to circumvent and crush him. He was resolved to anticipate this movement and to send a vessel to Spain with dispatches addressed to the emperor himself, announcing the nature and extent of his discoveries, and to obtain, if possible, the confirmation of his proceedings. In order to conciliate his master's good will, he further proposed to send him such a present as should suggest the lofty ideals of the importance of his own service to the crown. To effect this, the royal fifth he considered inadequate. He conferred with his officers and persuaded them to relinquish their share of the treasure. At his insistence, they made a similar application to the soldiers, representing that it was the earnest wish of the general who set the example by resigning his own fifth, equal to the share of the crown. It was but little that each man was asked to surrender, but the whole would make a present worthy of the monarch for whom it was intended. By this sacrifice they might hope to secure his indulgence for the past and his favor for the future, a temporary sacrifice that would be well repaid by the security of the rich possessions which awaited them in Mexico. A paper was then circulated among the soldiers, which all who were disposed to relinquish their shares were requested to sign. Those who declined should have their claims respected and receive the amount due to them. No one refused to sign, thus furnishing another example of the extraordinary power obtained by Cortez over these rapacious spirits, who, at his call, surrendered up the very treasures which had been the great object of their hazardous enterprise. A complete inventory of the articles received from Montezuma is contained in the Carta de Veracruz. The following are a few of the items. Two collars made of gold and precious stones. A hundred ounces of gold ore, that their highnesses might see in what state the gold came from the mines. Two birds made of green feathers, with feet, beaks, and eyes of gold, and in the same piece with them, animals of gold, resembling snails. A large alligator's head of gold. A bird of green feathers, with feet, beak, and eyes of gold. Two birds made of thread and feather work, having the quills of their wings and tails, their feet, eyes, and the ends of their beaks of gold, standing upon two reeds covered with gold, which are raised on balls of feather work and gold embroidery, one white and the other yellow, with seven tassels of feather work hanging from each of them. A large wheel of silver, weighing forty marks, and several smaller ones of the same metal. 
a box of featherwork embroidered on leather, with a large plate of gold weighing seventy ounces in the midst. Two pieces of cloth woven with feathers, another with variegated colors, and another worked with black and white figures. A large wheel of gold with figures of strange animals on it, and worked with tufts of leaves, weighing three thousand eight hundred ounces. A fan of variegated featherwork with thirty-seven rods plated with gold. Five fans of variegated feathers, four of which have ten, and the other thirteen rods embossed with gold. Sixteen shields of precious stones with feathers of various colors hanging from their rims. Two pieces of cotton very richly wrought with black and white embroidery. Six shields, each covered with a plate of gold, with something resembling a golden mitre in the center. He accompanied this present with a letter to the emperor, in which he gave a full account of all that had befallen him since his departure from Cuba, of his various discoveries, battles, and traffic with the natives, their conversion to Christianity, his strange perils and sufferings, many particulars respecting the lands he had visited, and such as he could collect in regard to the great Mexican monarchy and its sovereign. He stated his difficulties with the governor of Cuba, the proceedings of the army in reference to colonization, and besought the emperor to confirm their acts as well as his own authority, expressing his entire confidence that he should be able, with the aid of his brave followers, to place the Castilian crown in possession of this great Indian empire. This was the celebrated first letter, as it is called, of Cortes, which has hitherto eluded every search that has been made for it in the libraries of Europe. Its existence is fully established by references to it, both in his own subsequent letters and in the writings of contemporaries. Its general purport is given by his chaplain, Gomara. The importance of the document has doubtless been much overrated, and, should it ever come to light, it will probably be found to add little of interest to the matter contained in the letter from Veracruz, which has formed the basis of the preceding portion of our narrative. He had no sources of information beyond those open to the authors of the latter document. He was even less full and frank in his communications, if it be true, that he suppressed all notice of the discoveries of his two predecessors. The magistrates of the Villa Rica, in their epistle, went over the same grounds with Cortes, concluding with an emphatic representation of the misconduct of Velasquez, whose venality, extortion, and self-devotion to his personal interests, to the exclusion of those of his sovereigns, as well as his own followers, they placed in a most clear and unenviable light. They implored the government not to sanction his interference with the new colony, which would be fatal to its welfare, but commit the undertaking to Hernando Cortes as the man most capable by his experience and conduct of bringing it to a glorious termination. With this letter went also another in the name of the citizen soldiers of Villa Rica, tendering their dutiful submissions to the sovereigns and requesting the confirmation of their proceedings, above all, that of Cortes as their general. The selection of the agents for the mission was a delicate matter, as on the result might depend the future fortunes of the colony and its commander. Cortes entrusted the affair to two cavaliers on whom he could rely. 
Francisco de Monteo, the ancient partisan of Velasquez, and Alonso Hernandez de Puerto Carrero, the latter officer a near kinsman of the Count of Medellin. And it was hoped his high connections might secure a favorable influence at court. Together with the treasure, which seemed to verify the assertion that the land teemed with gold as abundantly as that whence Solomon drew the same precious metal for his temple, several Indian manuscripts were sent. Some were of cotton, others of the Mexican aguave. Their unintelligible characters, says a chronicler, excited little interest in the conquerors. As evidence of the intellectual culture, however, they formed higher objects of interest to a philosophic mind than those costly fabrics which attested only the mechanical ingenuity of the nation. Four Indian slaves were added as specimens of the natives. They had been rescued from the cages in which they were confined for sacrifice. One of the best vessels of the fleet was selected for the voyage, manned by fifteen seamen and placed under the direction of the pilot Alaminos. He was directed to hold his course through the Bahama Channel, north of Cuba, or Fernandina, as it was then called, and on no account to touch that island or any other in the Indian Ocean. With these instructions, the good ship took its departure on the 26th of July, freighted with the treasures and the good wishes of the community of the Villa Rica de Veracruz. After a quick run, the emissaries made the island of Cuba, and in direct disregard of orders, anchored before Marianne, on the northern side of the island. This was done to accommodate Montejo, who wished to visit a plantation owned by him in the neighborhood. While off the port, a sailor got on shore, and crossing the island to St. Iago, the capital, spread everywhere tidings of the expedition, until they reached the ears of Velasquez. It was the first intelligence which had been received of the armament since its departure, and, as the governor listened to the recital, it would not be easy to paint the mingled emotions of curiosity, astonishment, and wrath which agitated his bosom. In the first sally of passion, he poured a storm of invectives on the heads of his secretary and treasurer, the friends of Cortez, who had recommended him as the leader of the expedition. After somewhat relieving himself in this way, he dispatched two fast-sailing vessels to Marianne, with orders to seize the rebel ship, and, in case of her departure, to follow and overtake her. But before the ships could reach that port, the bird had flown, and was far on her way across the broad Atlantic. Stung with mortification at his fresh disappointment, Velasquez wrote letters of indignant complaint to the government at home, and to the fathers of St. Jerome in Hispanola, demanding redress. He obtained little satisfaction from the last. He resolved, however, to take it into his own hands, and set about making formidable preparations for another squadron, which should be more than a match for that under his rebellious officer. He was indefatigable in his exertions, visiting every part of the island, and straining all his resources to effect his purpose. The preparations were on a scale that necessarily consumed many months. Meanwhile, the little vessel was speeding her prosperous way across the waters, and after touching at one of the Azores, came safely into the harbor of St. Lucar in the month of October. However long it may appear in the more perfect nautical science of our day, 
it was reckoned a fair voyage for that. Of what befell the commissioners on their arrival, the reception at court, and the sensation caused by their intelligence, I defer the account to a future chapter. Shortly after the departure of the commissioners, an affair occurred of a most unpleasant nature. A number of persons, with the priest Juan Diaz at their head, ill-affected for some cause or other towards the administration of Cortez, or not relishing the hazardous expedition before them, laid a plan to seize one of the vessels, make the best of their way to Cuba, and report to the governor the fate of the armament. It was conducted with so much secrecy that the party had got their provisions, water, and everything necessary for the voyage on board without detection, when the conspiracy was betrayed on the very night they were to sail by one of their own number, who repented the part he had taken in it. The general caused the persons implicated to be instantly apprehended. An examination was instituted. The guilt of the parties was placed beyond a doubt. Sentence of death was passed on two of the ringleaders. Another, the pilot, was condemned to lose his feet, and several others to be whipped. The priest, probably the most guilty of the whole, claiming the usual benefit of clergy, was permitted to escape. One of those condemned to the gallows was named Escudero, the very alguacil who, the reader may remember, so stealthily apprehended Cortez before the sanctuary in Cuba. The general, on signing the death warrants, was heard to exclaim, Would that I had never learned to write. The arrangements being now fully settled at the Villa Rica, Cortez sent forward Alvarado, with a large part of the army, to Sempoala, where he soon after joined them with the remainder. The late affair of the conspiracy seems to have made a deep impression on his mind. It showed him that there were timid spirits in the camp on whom he could not rely, and who, he feared, might spread the seeds of disaffection among their companions. Even the more resolute, on any occasion of disgust or disappointment hereafter, might falter in purpose, and getting possession of the vessels, abandon the enterprise. This was already too vast, and the odds were too formidable to authorize expectations of success with diminutions of numbers. Experience showed that this was always to be apprehended, while means of escape were at hand. The best chance of success was to cut off these means. He came to the daring resolution to destroy the fleet, without the knowledge of his army. When arrived at Semopala, he communicated his design to a few of his devoted adherents, who entered warmly into his views. Through them he readily persuaded the pilots, by means of those golden arguments which weigh more than any other with ordinary minds, to make such a report of the condition of the fleet as suited his purpose. The ships, they said, were grievously racked by the heavy gales they had encountered, and, what was worse, the worms had eaten into their sides and bottoms until most of them were not seaworthy. Some, indeed, could scarcely now be kept afloat. Cortez received the communication with surprise, for he could well dissemble, observed Las Casas, with his usual friendly comment, when it suited his interest. If it be so, he exclaimed, we must make the best of it. Heaven's will be done. He then ordered five of the worst conditioned to be dismantled, their cordage, sails, iron, and whatever was movable to be brought on shore and the ships to be sunk. A survey was made of the others, and, on a similar report, 
Four more were condemned in the same manner. Only one small vessel remained. When the intelligence reached the troops in Semopala, it caused the deepest consternation. They saw themselves cut off by a single blow from friends, family, country. The stoutest hearts quailed before the prospect of being thus abandoned on a hostile shore, a handful of men arrayed against the formidable empire. When the news arrived of the destruction of the five vessels first condemned, they had acquiesced in it as a necessary measure, knowing the mischievous activity of the insects in these tropical seas. But when this was followed by the loss of the remaining four, suspicions of the truth flashed on their minds. They felt they were betrayed. Murmurs at first deep swelled louder and louder, menacing open mutiny. Their general, they said, had led them like cattle to be butchered in the shambles. The affair wore a most alarming aspect. In no situation was Cortez ever exposed to greater danger from his soldiers. His presence of mind did not desert him at this crisis. He called his men together, and employing the tones of persuasion rather than authority, assured them that a survey of the ships showed that they were not fit for service. If he had ordered them to be destroyed, they should consider also that his was the greatest sacrifice, for they were his property, all indeed, he possessed in the world. The troops, on the other hand, would derive one great advantage from it, by the addition of a hundred able-bodied recruits, before required to man the vessels. But even if the fleet had been saved, it could have been of little service in their present expedition, since they would not need it if they succeeded, while they would be too far in the interior to profit by it if they failed. He besought them to turn their thoughts in another direction. To be thus calculating chances and means of escape was unworthy of brave souls. They had set their hands to work, to look back as they advanced would be their ruin. They had only to resume their former confidence in themselves and their general, and success was certain. As for me, he concluded, I have chosen my part. I will remain here while there is one to bear me company. If there be any so craven as to shrink from sharing the dangers of our glorious enterprise, let them go home in God's name. There is still one vessel left. Let them take that and return to Cuba. They can tell there how they deserted their commander and their comrades, and patiently wait until we return loaded with the spoils of the Aztecs. The politic orator had touched the right chord in the bosom of the soldiers. As he spoke, their resentment gradually died away. The faded vision of future riches and glory, rekindled by his eloquence, again floated before their imaginations. The first shock over, they felt ashamed of their temporary distrust. The enthusiasm for their leader revived, for they felt that under his banner only they could hope for victory, and they testified the revulsion of their feelings by making the air ring with their shouts, To Mexico! To Mexico! The destruction of his fleet by Cortez is perhaps the most remarkable passage in the life of this remarkable man. History, indeed, affords examples of a similar expedience in emergencies somewhat similar, but none where the chance of success was so precarious and defeat would be so disastrous. Had he failed, it might well seem an act of madness. Yet it was the fruit of deliberate calculation. He had set fortune, fame, life itself, all upon the cast, and must abide the issue. There was no alternative in his mind but to succeed or perish. 
The measure he adopted greatly increased the chance of success, but to carry it into execution in the face of an incensed and desperate soldiery was an act of resolution that has few parallels in history. End of Book 2, Chapter 8 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas